Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely Capital. And with me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Friday, January 20th, and today, uh, kind of in honor of our new president, I thought we could talk about his two favorite things, uh, jobs and Twitter. So, Chris, why don't we start off with Twitter? Uh, There were two news stories this week about Donald Trump and Twitter that really caught my eye, and they were both kind of more on the fun side. Uh, The first was a news story that was titled, uh, Mexican Peso Traders Want Mexico to Buy Twitter and Shut It Down. And what they were saying is, look, Mexico has actually been uh, spending all of their foreign currency dollar reserves to try to prop up the peso in the face of extreme weakness ever since Donald Trump's been elected. Uh, And some Mexican traders are just saying, look, the peso is so prone to dropping on uh, swings from Donald Trump's tweets. Why don't we just stop liquidating all those reserves? We'll buy Twitter. It's only going to cost 10 or $15 billion. Buy Twitter. Shut it down. He can't tweet anymore. We'll save money. Everybody's happy. And then the second news story I want to talk about was uh, it was an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled Discount Brokerages to Donald Trump Keep Tweeting. So contrary to the Mexican uh, peso traders, the discount brokerages, they're saying they love it when Donald Trump's tweets. They've seen a big jump in trading when uh, from retail traders ever since the election. And, you know, a jump in trading for a discount brokerage means a jump in a commission, which means more revenue, more profit for everyone. Uh, you know, they say traders are clearly taking positions based on Donald Trump's tweets. Uh, and I think my favorite quote was uh, one of the analysts came on their earnings call and said, I knew you were asset sensitive, but I guess you're tweet sensitive as now. Uh, so, Chris, Donald Trump, Twitter, shutting it down, keeping it open, retail brokerages. What do you think about it? Well, I didn't know if as of today we would have to have a new topic because of a newfound gravitas that it would be more presidential to uh, not tweet anymore. <laughs> but rest assured, we still have a topic. We didn't have to change the topic today. That, um, you know, people were wondering, what would Donald Trump run as for the Republican nominee? And he ran as Donald Trump. And then in the general election, he got to be the Republican nominee. How is he going to run for the general election? He ran as Donald Trump. He had a Donald Trump transition, and now he's a Donald. He's running. He's a, a Donald. The <laughs> government is Donald Trump, and he's been tweeting away uh, uppercase letters, exclamation points. He kind of got back from the inauguration, tweeting away. <laughs> At one point, he did switch over to Facebook because he had a point to make that was slightly over 140 characters, kind of 150, 160. So he switched <laughs> over to Facebook, and then he was back to Twitter. So that didn't last. Uh, that long. So uh, Mexico still has some time to buy a Twitter to uh, to help stabilize uh, the peso. Of course, the brokers, you know, this is just perfect for them because he writes about a lot of uh, liquid, uh, heavily traded stocks. Uh, from the perspective of the traders, it's not particularly valuable. You know, of the kind of younger millennial types that pay attention to these things and trade off of them, there's been a lot of mean reversion. So a lot of the initial reaction is a strong and wrong one. Um, but uh, it's quite consistent with the um, fidelity information. One of my favorite studies that a broker ever put out was that when they studied their best clients, they were the dormant accounts, clients that forgot they had a Fidelity account. This was uh, not their best clients in terms of revenue. It no. was the best clients in terms of total from return. From the client's yeah, perspective, yeah. from the poor schmucks who own the securities, 
uh, that forgot that they had a Fidelity account, uh, weren't trading, and outperformed all their active traders. I fear that these uh, millennial tweet traders will be on the other end of that spectrum. So one of the things uh, I believe it was Charles Schwab said was they did a survey and it showed that 60% of investors aged 25 to 34 had traded on a Trump tweet. And I actually fall into that range and I can promise you I have not traded on a Donald Trump tweet. But uh, that puts me in the minority. But it said, you know, older investors tend to trade less on it, which kind of makes sense. I suppose older investors generally less tuned to Twitter. But, you know, all of this trading with Twitter, it kind of makes me think a little bit of we talked about in our April Fool's uh, podcast how Tesla put out the Model W press release and on April Fool's once, and it was mocking the Apple Watch. The Model W was Tesla's watch, which they weren't actually putting out. But their stock, their stock kind of ran up 5% mm-hmm. on the news as people took in, algorithms took in, Tesla releases new models and shot their stock up. And I can't help but wonder, you know, Donald Trump, his tweets are, they're very basic, so I think they're hard to misinterpret. You know, it says, Boeing charging $4 billion for an airplane, sad, exclamation point. Hard to miss that, but I can't help but wonder, kind of what you were saying, if the overreactions are going to really swing these stocks and present opportunities to take the other side of the trade. And, you know, the, the one other thing I will say is, look, if something is in a tweet, you and I are not going to be able are not going to be the people who are going to be able to capture the alpha. Again, it's going to a quick trade is going to be captured by computers who are kind of scalping this thing and trading instantly. I think the real opportunity, if there is one, is going to be on the other side. The tweets themselves, if you ask what is the subtext? There is no subtext. There's not kind of multiple layers no. to the onion. Uh, and it's sort of, you could say that it's perhaps a negative that will never be faster than the computers. I would say it's a positive. If as long as we can admit defeat, we can spend none of our energy trying yep. to rush. And then instead we can be thoughtful, step back and say, well, the computers are going to rush. Maybe they go overboard. Maybe there are bugs. Maybe humans still have this role left or uh, or we can get sufficiently wealthy before our role is gone uh, trading against computers where we can react to the reaction. Absolutely. And then let's go over to the Mexican peso for a second. Sure. I just want to talk about that before we switch to uh, jobs. But, you know, I think the interesting thing from – Let's turn it to an investing perspective. I think the interesting thing from both in investing and even a personal perspective is the peso has been crushed by Donald Trump. And yeah. actually, almost every foreign currency, the dollar has been incredibly strong over the past 12 months. But I think from an investor perspective, the opportunity is never to trade currencies. Look, that is a big macro trade, a very efficient market. I don't think there's an edge to be had there. But I think the investment opportunity is to go look for things that benefit from a strong dollar. So, you know, if you're buying your goods in Mexico and selling them in the U.S., all of your goods just got a lot cheaper. Uh, the car manufacturers are not allowed to do that anymore. But, you know, the car manufacturers would generally be a perfect example. From a personal standpoint, you know, in going for vacations in Mexico, incredibly cheap. And you see a lot of pe- you see a lot of Mexican resorts who are saying, hey, we are at peak capacity because people are trying to come down here and take advantage of that strong dollar week peso. My, my two reactions were I was going to – I don't know if she's listening to this, but I was going to egg on uh, you to say, oh, you should take your girlfriend to Akamal, which is my favorite place. Um, uh, you go to – Cozumel is pretty cheesy, but when you go uh, south – 
you, there's some beautiful beaches. Cenote diving is awesome. There's some really good scuba diving in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a, a better deal uh, than it used to be. Mm-hmm. You have to land near Cancun, which is but uh, so my girlfriend always teases me. She wants to go on spring break and get on like MTV spring yeah. break, which well, I don't know do if it. that's still a yeah. thing. But we've got a chance to do it. Yeah. The, the dollar strong, the pesos weak. We're going to spring break. So you should absolutely do that. And then when you're down there, just as an investor, you should write off the whole thing as a research expense. Also, of course, and uh, should also just look at I mean there's so many things that can happen that would be great for Mexico to the extent that one was concerned about migration to and from the US I'm not and if I was I wouldn't be now that being said there are so many industries that have very very crude uh, services like the oil services if they were able to really develop oil and gas in Mexico there are tons of opportunities there and for US dollars to invest abroad I mean you should just be looking around the world for cheap uh, nation markets uh, opportunities mispricings and with dollars it's ever uh, more uh, uh, opportune time you know the other thing I, i'll just say quickly about the peso is one of donald trump's big things has been renegotiating nafta and mm-hmm. getting mexico to pay for the wall and i can't help but if the help but think if the two are kind of related you know he threatens to break up nafta and then he agrees to kind of keep the u.s and nafta and keep the the trade flowing in exchange for some something that buys him a little a lot of political capital for building the wall that's just something that came up to me as we were talking, but uh, I don't know if we need to go into that. You want to turn over to jobs? Sure. Great. So we've discussed Donald Trump and his love of big job creation announcements on this podcast several times. You know, we talked, uh, I think it was SoftBank said 100,000 jobs and then Alibaba taught them with a million jobs. I think those were the numbers, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. Uh, you know, on Wednesday, Donald Trump... A million's Trump, really a lot. <laughs> <laughs> one but, in 330 Americans. But I think one of the things we were saying is, look, at, it, it became, it doesn't really matter... Uh, the logic behind it, it became a great headline is all that matters. And Donald Trump, he pledged this week he's going to be the greatest jobs producer that God has ever created. That's a direct quote. And NBC News actually had a report that said, look, a bunch of companies are coming out and they're reannouncing job creation plans that they already had in order to be avoided, uh, in order to avoid being targeted by Trump. And you know, they cited GM. They already had some uh, plans to change a Mexican production facility to the U.S. They had announced it in like 2013, and because they got targeted by Donald Trump, they came out and said, "Hey, we're creating some new U.S. jobs," and that got them a congratulatory tweet. Uh, and you know. NBC News announced the story. It led to Donald Trump calling the reporting fake news, and he said directly, all these jobs are coming back because of me, which I kind of thought was a little egotistical. But I wanted to turn it over to you. You know, Where do you think this relentless focus on job headline numbers at all costs is going, and do you think it's healthy? Well, you know, I'd like to start with one of my favorite scenes from The Simpsons when Bart takes the dog to obedience school, and the dog wasn't listening at all. It wasn't doing anything. So after a while, he just quit and started ordering the dog to do whatever it was doing anyways so he's like sit he went say he's like wander over there <laughs> sniff that other dog's butt and i think that a lot of companies are going to do now is just whatever is going to happen anyways they're just going to describe it in terms of a miracle created by donald trump that amazon literally just did a simple linear extrapolation of their natural growth rate and said We'll have this number of jobs because of Donald Trump. And so this is going to become a big part of our pop culture. Um, One of the concerns I have is if you look at phony jobs or politically created jobs, they can be very precarious. When I lived in North Carolina, there was about... 10,000 textile jobs in the area that were very phony political jobs. They were simply created out of protectionism. Well, 
nothing is more ruthless than a government regime when it fails and yep. runs out of money. And then just in a day, it's gone. And the natural service economy in the area, you know, I was talking to people at Walmart. They said, oh, we can hire easily about 10,000, about of the 10,000, about 1,000. And we could have hired 100% of them at the natural attrition rate that that industry would have had. Yep. So there would have been no unemployment, but there was massive unemployment because it just collapsed all at once. And I think that that can be a really a precarious aspect of society when these jobs are phony uh, created. Also, it's a little, sounds ruthless to say, but the economics, economics would say some structural unemployment is good and in fact necessary for job growth elsewhere. Where are the jobs supposed to come from if there's not some unemployed people? Let's turn to that in a second. I just want to talk sure. a little bit more uh, about this political jobs. You know, the sure. two things I wonder is like, you know, the, the famous thing GE did under Jack Welsh was you you fire the bottom 10% of your employees. Yep. And I can't help but wonder three if 3G too. Uh, yep, yep. There's- and I can't help but wonder if people are going to start, you know, tweeting like, hey, we had 100 employees. They're going to ignore the fact they fi- fired the bottom 10%. You know, they fired 10 employees. And they're just going to ha- highlight, hey, we're hiring 10 new jobs or mm-hmm. multiply it by 100, 1,000, whatever. But we're hiring 1,000 people. And they don't mention, oh, we fired 1,000 people to get there. That I, I just wonder about the optics of that, if that actually encourages more job turnover just to get kind of better headlines. So maybe you fire your bottom 20 instead of your bottom 10 because you'll get a good thing. And then the other thing, you and I mentioned this before, but you know, Bear Monsanto, Bear came and they promised Donald Trump billions of dollars in research and hundreds of jobs if their merger got approved. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if this, uh, you know, if using the bully pulpit to encourage big companies to hire jobs and kind of reward them for that, if that is actually bad for the economy, because you're kind of saying, hey, big companies get political protection, big companies get kind of political goodwill, they get all this extra attention turned to them, and actually means smaller companies find it more difficult to compete, or bigger companies can get deals done that otherwise shouldn't get done because they're willing to trade in political favors. Absolutely. I think I think it's arbitrary. I think the president's job is really to be the head of a government that's a referee, not on the field. And this is somebody who cannot help but be on the field. Uh, the ideal should be creating an environment for jobs, not the jobs uh, themselves. Um, and it's going to lead to a lot of picking winners and losers. Once the government gets into that job, they inevitably side with producers and large concentrated producers at that. I would say that jobs simply should be a side effect of good public policy. Ultimately, production is for consumers, not producers or employees. And if you're fixated on the consumer, uh, the jobs will come. But for a while, there will be improvements in productivity through technology. This isn't a zero-sum game. But listening today to the president and a lot of his policies seem to be really based around a mental model of the economy as a zero-sum game. Yeah. And you know, one thing Warren Buffett has said is, you know, Warren Buffett worth 50, 60 billion dollars, whatever. He said, look, I could hire a thousand people to paint a painting of me every day. Mm -hmm. And by hiring them and making that painting, it would make GDP stats kind of go up and employment stats go up. But you're not actually creating value. You're just kind of lighting money on fire. And it almost seems like companies are being encouraged, light that money on fire, get some jobs, forget about return, forget about investment. Let's turn real quick to something you started talking about and I kind of pulled us back from. You know, the unemployment rate is already below 5%. It's quite low. I can't help but wonder if this focus on relentless job creation, it makes for a nice talking point, but is it, we kind of talked, is it good for the economy? Probably not, but is it really necessary at this point? And aren't we kind of risking a lot of labor inflation and a lot of sectors that actually need to hire workers might be left out in the cold because we're encouraging, you know, maybe the automotive sector isn't where new workers should be going, but we're really encouraging them to ramp up hiring for what might not be economic reasons. 
unemployment is low immigration from mexico right now is particularly low and so it's a very strange time for those things now wage growth is also low true but, um, and but, i think there's uh, been some stuff that says that people are a little underemployed but it's a great point great but, point. but but from an economics perspective this is not a well-timed uh, uh economic policy um so we'll see what comes of it um a, a book uh economics in one lesson by harry hazlitt's one of the kind of first econ books i ever read that really goes through the idea of make work mm-hmm. and it just annihilates the idea of make work and if you really think about all of the indirect as well as direct costs it really doesn't make sense um trump has some sensational people around him he's considering uh uh, 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 some great people for the Council of Economic Advisors. Hopefully he'll listen. Uh, but this doesn't make sense other than for politics. But it might be great politics. I think that a last thought I'd have on him and what I think he's doing in this focus on jobs uh, is this. Uh, most presidents have very strong characteristics that are virtues that offset perceived lacks by their predecessor. I think Obama was rightly or wrongly seen as very post-industrial. He had a lot of academic concerns, a lot of concerns that didn't directly relate to individuals' economic day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. And so this incredibly strong, if you wanted to be positive, you could maybe say crude if you wanted to sound negative, uh, look at your job and protecting your job is so different than Obama. You might like it more or less, but it is frequent in our history that we have these big changes yep. from leader to leader. It feels very, very 70s or 60s union, union-esque, which kind of makes sense because my understanding is Trump is a little bit of a technophobe. So mm-hmm. his focus on kind of the old school manufacturing industries does make sense. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, I, I'm not sure if it's, it, it might be great politics, it might not, but you know what it is? It is great for our podcast because I don't know if we need to even read anymore. We can just <laughs> go to Donald Trump's Twitter and pull material for the next four years. So that's going to be awesome. Uh, you want to wrap it up there? Yes. Great. So that's all the time you have. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Just before we hit our disclosures, a quick reminder. Look, if you like this podcast, uh, the best way to get more is to recommend us to a friend and get them to start listening. You know, our listener numbers kind of encourage us if we want to keep going or not. So recommend us. Get this podcast growing and we will be happy Pre- to keep taking it. I was going to say now, not even President like President Trump, if you'd like to recommend us on your Twitter feed, that would help. Yeah, though we also want to certain. I don't want to say his followers aren't quality, but it does seem like they respond to the headlines more than the content. We want people who actually listen and respond to the content too. Uh, disclosures, none for me, Chris. I think we only mentioned Twitter, so none I don't, for me. Okay, great. We'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one.